had I not lost my son and been true to trauma and been so committed to try to prevent these tragedies, had that not happened, I would not have gotten involved and put doctors out of business. In our last episode, we introduced you to the central character of the Netflix documentary, the pharmacist Dan Schneider. Dan told us he had no idea his son was using crack before he was murdered in New Orleans in the late 90s. While police didn't show much interest in his son's case, Dan took it upon himself to use every investigative tool at the time to find his son's killer. But the story doesn't end there. In his role as a pharmacist, Dan was among the first to spot the opioid epidemic in this country and actually do something about it, shutting down pill mill doctors and pushing for a prescription monitoring program in his state. But I said, you know what? Technology is available to prevent this from happening. There's going to be a parent that loses a kid that is going to sew the board, and you better get ready. Immediately, they go to work on a pharmacy monitoring program. Dan has never stopped pushing for changes to save lives lost unnecessarily to drugs. Now he's turning his attention to the availability of medically assisted treatment, or MAT. Here's the second half of our conversation on his latest advocacy work. I know when you were starting, when you were noticing the Oxycontin prescriptions and you were able to get one doctor stopped and then maybe another one, you were hearing about the number of overdose deaths and they were probably, I'm guessing, 50,000, 60,000 a year. I know when my daughter died in 2018, it was 72,000 deaths a year. Now it's 107. The year my son died, overdose deaths were 16,000. Three years later, when OxyContin started percolating, then jumped to a huge 25,000. I thought it was the end of the freaking world. Now that would be nothing. If we could get 25,000, we would celebrate. But I didn't see it that way. See, I knew it wasn't going to stop at 25,000. I almost couldn't envision 100,000. I couldn't see how it would end. But I was enlightened. Aware, alert, protective. God was almost out. I don't know. Okay. Now, there was only so much I could do about it. You're one person. And I think, yeah, you did a lot. And systems have changed. Doctors aren't prescribing as freely as they once were. Some of that's going back a little bit, sliding back. I've seen that. I witnessed that a little bit. But they are more aware. We have these prescription monitoring things in place, but the, you know, people have gone to the streets to get their drugs. Fentanyl is a huge, huge factor. So what do we, what, what do, we do now? What do you, what does God tell you to do now? I don't mean to laugh when I say that, but I, I, seriously, I kind of feel like it's on you. I'm <laughs> glad you asked that question. For a while after the pharmacist, you do get a little bit of a big head. I will always pray to God, God, don't let my ego get in the way of this thing, okay? I still have work to do, but but it kind of does. People ask for your autograph, they want pictures with you, you know? It wasn't a crazy idea, but I initially said, you know what? I don't know if I want to investigate again. I don't even know if I want to run a nonprofit that, that I got to have meetings with people. I'm 70 years old now, okay? Where, where do I fit in here? Well, I got this kind of national statue. And I really believe we have been able to get the politicians to do what they have to do. And that, that's some truth. In so I start thinking that I can develop a, what I'm going to call a lobby, okay, or a, an association. 
And I'm going to use my name, my platform right now to get people to sign up. And, and once I get like 100,000 people signed up, 500,000 people signed up, and of course, I want to sign up all advocacy groups and nonprofits and all that. But I want to get some of the general public involved because I think that's necessary. It's missing. You need more than the choir. Okay. You need the whole church. So it's a great idea. And I think I can do it. You know, hey, I've been able to do everything I wanted to do. If God's on my side, so why can't I do this? Okay. For a year and a half, I worked. And about six months ago, I finally gave up on it. And I didn't totally give up on it. I tabled it. Okay. I can't, it was taking energy away. I wasn't speaking at schools as much. I wasn't doing a lot of the things. I was so involved in trying to recruit and trying to make this happen and beckon people to join. So about six months ago, I was almost burnt out. Okay. And so I started looking for solutions. Okay. Where else can I fit in? Okay. And you're, you're going to, this is kind of radical. It's going to be radical to you. It would have been radical to me two years ago. What do we have to do? I've toyed with decriminalization, and I think that has some merits. So anyway, I've, I've toyed with a bunch of things. But now, all of a sudden, I get another frustration. And I'm a little guilty myself. In the documentary, and they kind of set me up for this, okay? And they didn't play the whole story. But the context. You know, what happened after we did tighten up on the prescription opioids, a lot of people went to heroin. Yes. Because people couldn't afford the pills anymore. If they were addicted to the pills, they couldn't afford the pills. Then they went to heroin because it was cheaper. And then the heroin became laced with fentanyl. At least you were a little bit more honest in the way you say it. Many people started claiming because they couldn't even get the doctor to write the prescription because they were tightening up. And there was a little bit of truth to that. People started going to heroin mainly because of price. Mainly because it was still a little bit better high than prescription drugs. So it wasn't a battle that we really tightened up. They might have had some impact, but it was only a partial impact. They were going to go there anyway. But there are people out there that say, and I even said it in documentaries, I don't know if what I did was right. I got to tighten down while the prescription opioids and they went to heroin and they started dying. And I even conceded in there that I had kind of mixed feelings about maybe what I had accomplished. What? What they took out of context was I said more than that. I, I qualified it after. I qualified it that, yeah, but there was a lot of people who gave up drugs. Well, and there were some people that never became addicted in the first place because they didn't get the prescription. Yeah, so it's a shame. Now I almost got to defend what the hell I did because some people were saying, did you really do the right thing? And I was even saying it a little bit. And, and I guess there's even still a trace of truth. But anyway, now I'm in this mode now looking for solutions. And the CDC now wants to loosen up the prescription opioids. Now, I have to admit, some doctors went too far. There are a few cases where maybe in some strange cases, people really needed opioids and it's kind of hard for them to get them. But in general, they need these kind of restrictions, okay? It, it is working. Less people becoming addicted. But in this time where they're dying, some people think, well, wouldn't it be better to give them Oxycontin? Because when you have it like don't have fentanyl in it, you're going to kill you instantly. Your daughter, she's right. taking Oxycontin, she'd be alive today. Yes. There's logic to that. And I'm not totally against this because you really want to save a person's life any kind of way you can. Then you start having these home reduction sites. And, you know, yes. about needles. Now they want to actually set up a place where people could bring their illegal drugs. Fentanyl strips. Take them safely. Save some lives at least. There are some arguments, but this is crazy. Okay. You know, in a sense, you sort of condone it. 
Dan says instead of promoting taking illegal drugs safely, there is another way to save lives, one that has been available for some time, but is not widely used. I started to understand that we have something illegal that we can give them. That's Suboxone. It's medically assisted treatment, MAT. We have it. These people can get by on this. Is it the perfect treatment? Probably not, but they can get by on it. I started looking at that not only as a treatment, it's harm reduction. Some people can actually just take this thing. Some can even wean themselves off. When I start getting on to this, I start looking around and I read a book by Dr. Aaron Gupta. Dr. Aaron Gupta wrote the book, The Preventable Epidemic, a frontline doctor's experience and recommendations to resolve America's opioid crisis. A specialist in addiction medicine, Dr. Gupta says the United States must do more to train and incentivize physicians to go into addiction medicine, as well as promote medically assisted treatment or MAT. You can listen to my conversation with Dr. Gupta in episode 59 of this podcast. Meanwhile, Back to Dan and Dr. Gupta's partnership. And he starts telling me that doctors don't want to deal with this. That they have restrictions, they have hurdles, they don't get paid enough. And he starts pointing this out to me. And then even the pharmacies have hurdles in this. And I make a few phone calls to different pharmacies. And I start saying, you know, I always looked at this as maybe a tool in the toolbox kind of like lesser of the evils, kind of like not ideal, but maybe in some places. Okay. No, no, I, I don't look at it that way anymore. I, I think it's the only way we can significantly can reduce but If we want to get the masses involved in this thing, okay, we got to get it to them. Now, coincidentally, now, right when this is happening, Congress has an act before them called mainstreaming math. They removed the X waiver. For Suboxone. Making it easier for doctors to prescribe it. And and Dr. Gupta agrees that that's going to help. I said, yeah, but they're not going far enough. We got to incentivize doctors. We got to detail doctors. We got to convince them that this is not half-ass treatment. This is treatment. And in the meantime, it's harm reduction. I've even studied this. There are people that's on for five or 10 years. Now, do I want them on for five or 10 years? Would I rather them go to accidents? Okay. But if they functioning and raising their kids, and I'll give you an example of what happened. I call a local pharmacy that I know, a guy that I went to school with and whatnot. And he says, Dan, I'll tell you what. I used to kind of look down on these people. I would tell the prescription these smart. So it was a conscientious guy. He would go out there, well, how are you doing? And are you, are you going to 12 step? Are you in therapy? And he says, more and more, either they were lying to me and they weren't doing it, or they even started admitting to me they weren't doing that. Okay. And he said, you know, I got so angry almost at one time, I almost reported a couple of them and I was going to talk to the doctor about maybe threatening to discontinue them if they didn't do some of these other things. And he said, I almost did that. He said, but you know what? I don't know why I'm busy. It wasn't my place. He says, I got grandkids. I'm going to one of my grandkids' little league baseball games. Guess who's coaching? Suboxone patients. They've been on it for five years at my pharmacy. They are functioning. 
It's almost like high blood pressure medicine. It's a new way of thinking. Well, if you look at addiction as a disease of the brain, just like diabetes is a disease, hypertension is a disease, and it makes sense. It does make sense. Now, how do we break through these barriers? Dan says all the connections he's made through filming the pharmacist's docu-series began to pay off. Well, this is another concept. The house passes the mat bill. That's critical to everything that I'm talking about doing. And I got a coalition now of about 50 or 60, many of them doctors, pharmacists, law enforcement people. Beth Macy, who wrote Dope Sick. Danny Strong, who produced Dope Sick. People involved and fed up that, that have kind of been pushing this for years. I've got some other nonprofit groups. And, and I have some grassroots followers that are in this with me. And, and it's growing day by day. I want to do something called, I call it MC. It's E-M-M-C, Enhanced Mainstreaming Mad Coalition. I'm putting everything that I've learned into this. I hope it works. It's still theoretical. You don't know, okay? But in any event, I get so excited about this. Dr. Allen and all, I shoot for the top. I write a letter to the drug zone. And it, and it gets there because Danny Strong is a believer in it. Danny Strong called me up when Dope Sick came out, and he told me, he says, if it wasn't for the pharmacist, I wouldn't have done Dope Sick. And if you watch Dope Sick and you know the stories, he puts some nods in there to the pharmacist. And it goes beyond what my story did. Well, guess what it emphasizes? Matt, uh-huh. it saves a doctor and it almost saves one of the main characters in this. Had that person been on Matt? Now, by the way, now, for novices, now your daughter wasn't a novice now. If she was doing heroin. Right, but I didn't know. So I, much like you, I thought we were planning an intervention because I knew she was doing more than weed and Xanax, which is what I thought she was doing up to that point. But I would never have imagined heroin. And same thing with my son with crackhead. So I didn't mean to to, to be derogatory. But no, you're right. She was, she her disease had progressed severely. She's much beyond my knowledge. She had, guess what? Uh, Matt would not have told my son. He was not opiate addicted. That not only works for OUD, it doesn't work for SUD. So number one, there's plenty of substance use disorder needs treatment by holistic care. Methamphetamine, alcohol, cocaine, maybe in some cases, opioid combines with that. But there are plenty of people that are strictly opiate addicts, and that is a treatment, and we're not using it. So then I start looking at statistics on that. Less than 20% of the people are being treated with this. Why? There's a stigma about this. It's swapping one drug for another drug. They kind of made people feel bad if they didn't get off. And then what a lot of them would do, they felt so bad that they would get off and try to make it and relapse. And in this environment, they would die. Right. Right. Okay. You're 100% correct. Yes. yes. So the common now, this wouldn't have always been the case that that fits the bill. But because of harm reduction and because of fentanyl and because of the magnitude of the problem, it could possibly be a major, major factor in significantly reducing the problem. Okay. I, I go to the top. Well, Rahul Gupta is the drug zone. I'm supposed to meet with him on a Zoom. Well, it winds up he doesn't show up, but he's got his first assistant and his staff. He's a busy man. I lay all my stuff out to him, give him good arguments, and we, we get some lip service. Like, yeah, it, it, it's interesting, and uh, we've kind of working with that to some extent. But, you know, you get lip service. So then I know Ryan Hampton. Ryan Hampton's a, a big advocate 
He's written a couple of books. Uh, he has a fairly big organization around the country, one of the biggest ones. And so Ryan, I'll talk to Ryan about this because he knows a lady named Regina LaBelle. Regina LaBelle has been in addiction for years, and she's a, a scholar in this. She gets appointed drugs or acting drugs or when Biden comes in. And she has hope that she's going to become the drugs or, where he winds up choosing Rahul Gupta for whatever reason. So she's a little bit more touchable, and Ryan knows her. So Ryan puts a call up and says, talk to this out of forces. The former acting drug czar, Regina LaBelle, gives Dan some valuable advice that he immediately takes to heart. So I'll call Regina up and she takes my call. And she says, Dan, let me tell you, I was almost a drug czar. You got an issue here. You always go out to the top. That's not how you do this. What you have to do is you've got to go out in the field and create some pilot programs. Institute your pilot program on the ground level. Find communities that are willing to pitch in and you develop a planning system. And once you get these things going, if the theory works and you're seeing significant benefits, okay, then you go to Congress and you have something to back it up with. Because my goal is during COVID, the government all went all in. I know there's some controversy about that, but they spent billions of dollars on vaccines. They spent billions of dollars paying for people to get the vaccine. And believe it or not, some people say we'd have a much higher mortality rate if we wouldn't have did all that. And the mortality rate during COVID was 1.2%. That's what it averaged out. Well, I study now, what is the mortality rate with OUD? Opioid use disorder. If you really look at the entire age bracket, they close. Okay. And in fact, COVID's worse. But if you look at 15 to 54, well, guess what? 15 to 54 in the two and a half years that we've had COVID since my pharmacist came out, in that period of time, 15 to 54, about 110 people, 1,000 people have died from COVID in that age bracket. 160,000 have died from OUD. Preaching to the choir here because this is something I'm always telling people is that this is an epidemic and it is killing so many people. I think because of the stigma, there isn't stigma around catching COVID. That is a bit political. I will say the stigma is coming down. Congress been losing kids now. Timing is everything. Okay. If I had this idea two years ago, there ain't no chance in hell it worked. Now it's looking for a solution, something that I could focus on. Now, what are we going to do with this enhanced thing? Okay. We're going to cover everything why doctors don't do this. If we got to pay them extra money, if they don't have insurance, we're going to pay for this. I see that you're trying to get donations to help give people treatment. Well, timing is everything. If you watch the pharmacist at the very stand of it, I'll meet with an old high school buddy in a local cafe. This is a guy I went to high school with. He has become a prominent attorney. He was involved in the tobacco litigation. And he doesn't know what I've been doing. Now, he knows I lost his son, but he really doesn't know that I've been advocating for 20 years. So the producers of the pharmacists find this guy. And the reason why they find this guy is because he's leading the opioid settlement money. 
And they go to him and they want to interview him. And normally he doesn't take interviews. And they push that rig in and they start saying, well, they got this pharmacist, Dan Snyder. Well, we graduated together. I can't think of a better use of the opioid settlement money than to go for Matt. Exactly. We're going to get some charity money involved in this and some corporate money in this, okay, if we need it. And we're going to find a way to pay these doctors extra money or bonuses. It's going to be some structure. The other thing is we're going to pay people to detail these doctors. The pharmaceutical industry details these doctors on their drugs. So we're going to detail these doctors on the need for right math. And now that they mainstream doctors came in, now they can actually do it. And we're going to make sure they get paid properly and we're going to motivate. Them. And then we're going to make sure that the patient doesn't have to pay a nickel, no questions asked. If we can get a partly covered by insurance or on such and such fine, if not, we're going to make up the difference. They're going to be able to go to the doctor or they're going to be able to go to the pharmacy, no cost, zero cost. And we're going to tell the drug dealers, you can't be zero cost. That's true. You cannot be zero cost. So you let me know how Emily's help can get behind this too, because I think this is fantastic. That is important, but it doesn't cover SUD. There's 40 million people that have SUD. Inside that circle, there's only, some people say it's as little as 3 million. I think it's more like 5 million, but it's only a small percentage. Alcohol is the overwhelming biggest, but methamphetamine's big, inhalants, you name it. But guess what? 80% of the deaths are OUD. That's true. But now people who buy meth that has fentanyl in it, people who buy cocaine, it has fentanyl in it. And the pharmaceutical companies were tasked to come up with a way to relieve pain that wasn't addictive, to come with alternative pain. That hasn't happened that I've heard of. They're working on that supposedly. That's a dream of, of everybody. Well, kill that with some kind of way prevent you from getting addicted. But in the meantime, that is the best we got. And we've had it for years. But the scenario wasn't right. There was a stigma involved. You were still giving them a drug to get off the drug. Who would think that that's the right thing to do? But now, when I'm dying on this, they're thinking about letting them shoot illegal drugs. They're thinking about reducing, letting them have Oxycontin. I mean, you know, the timing is right for this. And guess what? We even got Congress, bipartisan, overwhelmingly passed the mainstreaming not act. Maybe you could try to develop a politic area. You can get together with on that. Maybe you could put it as a link on your site. For those with OUD, this is the direction we'd like to focus on. We cannot try to say it's not the right thing just to put them on that. If they want to stay on it, fine. And if you can get them to do other treatment involved in it, it will increase their chances. I might even try to motivate them. We might even pay the patient. We might actually say, every time you go to 12-step and prove that you went to 12-step, we'll give you $25. I want that to work better than just taking the damn pill and forgetting about it, okay? But if that's all they do, and they live, and they coach Little League, and they pay taxes, and they don't die, I'm all for it. Dan says he spent a long time thinking about the downside of more Suboxone prescriptions, based on his own experience as a pharmacist when the drug first came out. I had to change my thinking. I don't know if I could have convinced myself a year ago. And by the way, now it's not perfect. Or some people are going to still die yet. Or some people are going to sell their Suboxone. But let me tell you, I've even covered that. I thought about that. And in fact, early on, 20 years ago, I started people on Suboxone. When it first came out, I had some success. But I was fairly naive at that time, too. I had one-third success with it, okay, and two-thirds failure. 
And then I heard some people were found in ways, crazy ways to abuse her, thinking with all the drugs and having problems. And, and then I found some were selling. So I started looking at the, the class half empty, not the one third that made it. Yeah. Some of them did it with just the drug. And they weaned off now. Almost nobody stayed on it long term. They weaned themselves off. It is. So anyway, after that happened, I started developing a stigma about Matt. And so for years, I cooled my hair. Was like, I would never speak against it, but I would say maybe it's a tool in the toolbox. And, and there's some truth to that. But we had a different era now. These people need to get something. that Their brains are diseased now. This drug helps their brain normalize. It helps get control of things. And while we're at it, maybe we can get someone to get more advanced treatment, which increases the success. And guess what? If some of them want to beat the system, some of them might get Suboxone and go sell it so they can buy something stronger because it don't give a big high, okay? It does remove cravings and whatnot. Well, okay, that person's hurting himself. But what about the person that buys the Suboxone on the street? What did it do for them? If they wouldn't have got the Suboxone on the street, what were they going to do? And I think nobody should have to go to the street to get it, right? Well, you hit on something, but just even still, if they're not even thinking about going to a doctor, that day, they saying, I'm afraid to take fentanyl. I know Suboxone is relatively safe. Now, they're not thinking about getting well on Suboxone. they surviving a day. If somebody gives them Suboxone, oh, man, I can take this thing. I got to worry about dying. <laughs> now, if they knew they could also go to a doctor, they might actually get in a program. Okay. But so, I mean, even when it's diverted, it's to save a life. And that's what we need to do here. I think with the death numbers the way that they are, and this is the tool we have at our disposal until something better comes along. You hit the nail on the head. If, if there was something better, maybe there's a better way of doing it. It, it, it. Nothing is perfect. But God, we got to give it a try. We only got 20% of the people utilizing this. Let's get 80%. And then let's see what happens to the numbers now. Now, I got some big dreams just to give you an idea. And maybe this is just shooting for the moon. I don't really think. In two or three years, if we could get this moving fairly quick, and I don't know if I can do that, okay? But maybe if we get this moving really quick and get some little time going, I think we can cut OUD deaths in half. Well, that would be incredible. That'd be a 40,000 truck. Now, understand now, we had 110,000 almost. So that only brings it down to what? 70,000? Which at one time might have been horrible, okay? A big goal, and if you could do that, that would be unbelievable. Yeah. What about the drug dealers? The drug dealers used to have this readily available product for them, easier than getting some box on and cheap. $10, $15, Now, over the month, it was not that cheap. But for that night, the cheapest thing for them, if they went to a Suboxone doc, then it cost 100 bucks. They didn't have 100 bucks that night. Now they go to the doc and get some box on. So all of a sudden, the street dealers now have to compete with something that's free and safe. And you start disrupting the demand. A lot of people want to say supply pushes demand. It does, but more than If they ship this stuff here and it won't sell, they ain't going to keep shipping. They're not going to invest to lose money. They know it's an insatiable thing right now, and nobody has any alternatives. I think it's a solution, and there's so many ramifications. And one thing I found, and I'm sure you found too, is... There's so many grandparents raising their kids. I just recorded a podcast with the grandmother raising her granddaughter. There's so many kids that have lost parents and parents that have lost kids. 
Dan has thought a lot about the criticism of his MAT plan and has come up with solutions like this one. Now, I'll probably miss something, but I'm used to trying to figure out what could go wrong. And one of the things that's going to happen is they're going to say, are you creating suboxone welfare? We're going to sunset it in one year. Now, it's going to be tough. I hate to end it in a year. Now, remember, they don't have to stop taking suboxone. They just got to start paying for it or have insurance or have Medicaid or whatever. But we're going to give it to them for a year. We're going to give them a leg up. We're going to give them a running start. I can define the program to the Congress to say, you don't have to worry about starting something that's going to be a forever thing. Now, maybe they'll make some exceptions if they feel like they need to do it, okay? But I want to sell it as a one-year sunset so that I don't have these people saying, we don't pay for insulin to everybody. Why should we say it's just a box on everybody? Well, they got a crisis right now. We're going to do it for a year to see if we can bend the curve. We're going to see if we can reduce this type of thing. So my program would have a sunset clause in it. Getting Suboxone in clinics across the country is key. We're going to have to get regular doctors that have maybe treat people for blood pressure, okay? Not just clinics, but we're going to have this in rural cities. We're going to have there some regular country doctors that say, I'll take one or two of my patients. I'll try this thing out. And I think if we just have doctors in general screening for addiction in the first place, the first time a patient goes to any kind of doctor, if they're screening for addiction, if that's just standard protocol in this country, we'll get more people help more quickly. I agree. I, I don't really have all the answers. I probably have missed something in this picture. I think it's an educated experiment. I don't think it'll do harm. Hey, we got to try. We have to do something. I'm so glad that you still have so much passion. Even after everything you've been through, you still have so much passion for this. And I think that's lovely. Let me, let me tell you what gave, helped give me the passion. I'm 71 years old. Remember I told you about God? God's been all over this thing. I'm not the biggest Christian in the world. I go to church like maybe two or three Sundays. I'm Catholic, but you know, I'm cafeteria Catholic, so to speak, in a way, maybe a little bit more than that. Okay. I am a believer, but I've been a doubter. And every now and then I still have doubts. Even though I've seen these miracles, which have basically told me it can't be anything other than this, there's still this scientific part of you that just can't quite totally accept it. I'm close. Just like I'm close to forgiving Jeffrey, I'm close to really totally buying that to Jesus. Now, funny thing, the pharmacist breaks. Remember, I already told you it breaks during COVID, okay, which I think is a disaster, but it's a godsend. A lot of these little things turn into godsends. Well, another thing happens, and I know it's big. I'm getting letters in and emails, TV stations calling me about this story. I'm laying in bed with my wife. It's 10.30 at night, and I get this call, and I get this woman on the phone, and I don't know who this woman is. She knows me, but I don't know her. So I finally got to say, I'm sorry. But no, this, this is Suzette, your attorney. Now, it sounds like, how could you forget your own attorney? And I had a hired attorney last month to negotiate the contract with Netflix. So now she's on the phone telling me this. Then she says something else. She says, you just signed Miss America. And I said, so? Well, she's a pharmacy student. She's got the same platform as you. And so me and I get together, we tour the country talking. 
Dance partnership and national tour with Miss America 2020 Camille Schreier helped boost his confidence that he would continue to make a difference and save lives. Yeah, I feel like I've done some, a lot of people. I used to be an unsung hero. Now I guess I'm a song hero. But when I look at what's happened to this crisis, it's hard to feel really positive about this. When overdose deaths have gone from 25,000 to 110,000, my goal is to move the needle significantly. So Camille wrote on her picture, she put an album together of all the events that we did. She surprised me. She took all the photos and made a photo album with me, and she signed it. And in it, she said, and I know this guy is going to move the needle. I think you're going to move the needle. But we're going to give it a shot. It's probably the pharmacist's last hurrah. All you can do is try, and as long as you continue to find greater purpose in your son's death, that's all we can do. I joined Dan's Enhanced Mainstream MAC Coalition to try to help in the efforts to make medically-assisted treatment for opioid addiction more widely available. And I'll bring you updates on this podcast. Thanks for listening to Grieving Out Loud. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a positive review. You can listen to all of our episodes and read my blogs on our website, emilyshope.charity. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage.